Romans chapter 4, 1 to 8, divine friendship. All right, let's go to the, the, um, uh, just a bit of the context. All right, we went through stage 1 of Romans, where the apostle explains that all of us are, uh, apart from this wonderful work of God's grace, all of us stand before God condemned and in need of a Savior. There's no way we'll be able to dig ourselves out of it. There's no way we'll be able to achieve the heights of Everest before us to attain the glory that we were created for. We humbly have to bow ourselves and receive by faith in, in God's grace, we have to receive from him everything that's necessary for our salvation. And then here's what happens, and here's what we're going to look at today. Um, we are so uncomfortable with the idea of justification by faith alone through grace alone. It goes against how we're knit together. It just does. Uh, we want to find value in something that we've done, something that makes us different than other people, better than other people. And when the gospel comes and says, the best efforts you have made at reaching towards God are as if filthy rags. Receive this grace of God. Receive it. Embrace it. Hold on. Uh, you know, when Bo comes up here and confesses sin, what is he doing? He's saying, I believe in the grace of God. Therefore, I'm free, to, to, I'm free to boast about weakness, the apostle goes on to say. He goes, I, boast, I don't boast about what I've done. I boast about weakness because when I do, the glory of God is even greater in saving me. But our hearts don't like it. I don't like it. It goes against the grain of the stars on the board. It just goes against it. And so our hearts then move in, in some way against it by saying, then what really does matter? What really does count? And so what the apostle does in the text before us is he takes two really amazing heroes of the faith. And he doesn't do it the way I would do it. <clears throat> so as we read this, uh, you'll see what, what he does with David and with Abraham. And we'll spend time talking about Abraham in the weeks to come. Um, but, you know, Abraham is, is the father of the nation, right? He is the he is the founding father of, 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 of the Jewish nation and the people. And he is this bastion of faith and uh, success and fulfillment. And, and in, in that culture, you know, he, he, he became a great nation. His offspring, that was a way, uh, as a way of a, a person. Uh, their glory increasing was by having tons and tons of kids. Right? I know that seems weird now in a society where some people are deciding we don't even ever want to have a child. Uh, in that society, the abundance of your offspring was a sign of blessing and of wealth and of God uh, bestowing upon you his favor. So he takes these two, um, David and Abraham, and he uses them as an example. First thing I want you to see, though, is uh, the nature of our hearts to come up with some other argument against justification by faith. And that, that's where we are in Romans chapter 4, 1 through 8. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Okay, so that means uh, in his life, when he lived, the things that he did... What was the gain? Uh, what could he boast about? So that boasting has been kind of that key word. Uh, the, the gospel removes boasting and brings unity. Um, what shall we boast about? So again, that's, that's this response. Uh, what about what he gained according to the flesh? Verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works... 
he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. We can tend to do this with our heroes. We, we prop them up. Um, and and of, of all the people in the scriptures, it's interesting that the Jews would look to these two and say, what about these two? Um, are you telling me that Abraham was saved just because he believed? He didn't even know what Jesus would look like. He didn't even know how all this was going to work out. You're saying that Abraham uh, will stand before God and not point to all the things he's done, how he left his family, how he traveled, how he, you know, he, how he almost sacrificed his son, right? He's not going to point to that and say, God, receive me. Do you not remember when I, when I had the knife to my son, when, God, you tested me to see, do I love you? Do I believe in resurrection? Do I believe that you'll keep your promises, even if by my own hand I'm to kill my son? It's a beautiful, amazing, powerful story, right? Many atheists use it to disparage the love and the, and the, and the, the, the goodness of God. They say, what kind of God would make a father do that? Um, they don't understand the nature of God. They don't understand the nature of Abraham's relationship with God. Um, that, that all of that was shining way above this thought of, I'm going to uh, lose my son forever. But again, Abraham seems to have things to point to. And what about David? I mean, uh, Jake in his sermons has been taking us through these stories of David. You know, some of them are amazing. Right? This, this young man who was disdained by his whole family. Right? When, 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 when Samuel comes to anoint a king, and he, and he goes to Jesse and goes, get all your boys. Right? I mean, what, what, kind of, what kind of issues did David have to deal with later on in life? Like, my dad just got all my other brothers, but he left me with the sheep because he's like, there's no way it's going to be David. Right? Thanks, Dad. Right? I mean... Uh, then he slays this giant. Right? He shows grace and mercy to Saul. Fails to kill him when he's got a chance. So, so um, I want you to understand that that's why he's chosen these two examples. Because we, we, we look at people and we think, surely those people are going to stand on something other than the grace of God. Um, and, and I entitled this Divine friendship, and I, I'm taking a bit of a liberty here. Um, they don't use the word friendship in here. But Abraham is called a friend of God. He was God's friend. And maybe this doesn't mean as much to you as it does to me. But at 58, friendships are precious in a culture that is increasingly getting lonelier and lonelier and lonelier. Some of the statistics of loneliness, the statistics of people who don't have a friend, 
uh, Barna Research just produced something. It is alarming. But this fact that God is a friend of sinners. Uh, for, for me, it's had just this, this profound thought. Uh, in 1 in Chronicles, there's this list of all the people that helped David. Um, in 1 Chronicles 27, it says, Jonathan, David's uncle, was a counselor. Okay, so David had a counselor, because Jonathan, it says, was a man of understanding and a scribe. All right, so Jonathan had written the scriptures, had translated, had, had made copies of the scriptures. He had understanding, and, and that's who David went to for counsel. He and Jehiel, the son of Hachamoni, attended the king's sons. Ahithophel was the king's counselor, and Husha, the archite, was the king's friend. I love it. It's just listed like that. Your job is counselor. You take care of the kids. Uh, he goes on to say, um, uh, Joab was the commander of the king's army and all these roles in David's life. But one of the roles was friend. And I don't know about you, but the thought that God is Mark Kuyper's friend is a bit overwhelming to me at times. See, here's how I think about it. I think sometimes, as Bo said, God is our father. And, um, you know, our, our, as a father looks at his son and has compassion on his son. So that's another one of the images that God uses, God uses a, a metaphor of how we uh, should look to him in his correction. Um, but now my sons are in their 30s. And, um, and, and the relationship's just so different. It, it is truly a friendship. I mean, it is, it is a deep, abiding friendship whereby they know me really well and we enjoy each other. And it comes out in so many different ways. I think I told you about the time we were playing church softball and Luke hit a great, like, wasn't a grand slam, maybe a double or something like that. All right? And so uh, the whole church is there cheering on our, our softball team and, and uh, Luke gets on second base and he just yells out, Do you love me now, Dad? <laughs> right? He, he does it because he gets me. Like he knows that, oh man, what do these people think? I don't know. You know I mean, he, know, he just knows how I'm knit together. And so I'm, I'm dying laughing. And everybody is laughing. You know, just, just like there's this relationship. There's this friendship. There's this understanding. Comedy is deeper. But how can God be my friend? So I've been blessed with many friends. It, it, it is, as my brother Jonathan says, Mark, the gift God has given you is somehow he places awesome people around you. He just brings awesome people around you. What does a friend do? Um, you know, this week on a blue-gray day, a friend picked me up, took me to his home and surrounded me with his dogs, his kids, and made some stew. I had a friend after church leave a, a shotgun that was significant in my truck. I have friends that, uh, that sometimes will openly mock me when I pour out my heart about things I'm concerned about. They'll laugh. Kuiper, why do you not get this? Your father loves you. Why, why do you why? That is not important to your heavenly father. Kuiper, let this go. But they'll just openly mock in 
but they're my friends. Um, friendship is different. It is not something that is commanded. Right? And, and so and you've heard me talk all the time about how Christian love is far superior to worldly love. Right? A Christian is, is told to love your neighbor as yourself. Husbands, love your wife. It's commanded. Right? But we aren't commanded to like. We aren't commanded to be friends. It takes work, and there's something to it. Um, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, Scotty and I are buddies, right? Scotty and I are friends, and, and we want to write a series of children's books called uh, The Salesman and the Preacher and Their Adventures. Um, and uh, but there was a couple of years ago where uh, Scotty and I's friendship, we just kind of got to this spot when I just looked at him and I said, Scotty, if this is going to go any further, you got to at least pick up one or two of my hobbies. I'm going to give you an option. OK, we can either we, you can either fish or hunt or enjoy watching college football or play cards like just just some of those things like that's what I do with my time. Right. Friendships are built by doing things together in common interests. And um, and then he had his list that I haven't done yet. But uh, but there was this thought, like if, if we're going to work on friendship, we, we need time. We need common interest. And when it says that God is a friend of sinners, it just kind of goes against what I think. Here's what I think. All right. Here's what I think. I think my relationship with God is father son. OK. But it's father son in the grocery store. Where the son is throwing a fit. And embarrassing the father and nobody else watching thinks what a wonderful child oh we've always wanted a baby like this no everybody that's watching like I think spanking is appropriate uh, okay we don't do that anymore uh, maybe timeout is appropriate by the way you know timeout was invented by introverted kids as a punishment just so you know just a little freebie there, you know. Oh, you're going to send me in my room? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> right? But I tend to think of God that way. That, that, like, I'm his son. He has to love me. He's made a commitment to me. But does he enjoy me? Does he, does he seek to, to, to bring into my life things that bring great joy and pleasure and connection? Yes. He does. And I've told you about one of my best friends in Mississippi uh, who, who, who said to me, Kuiper, if I came across you in a fight, in a bar, or wherever, he's like, I'd put my back against your back, and we'd fight until we were done. And if you needed to tell me what it was about, that'd be okay. But if you didn't want to, that would be okay. I just remember thinking, wow. I don't know if I'm that friendly to anybody. <laughs> and yet, our God was a friend to Abraham. How on earth can God befriend a sinner such as I, since he hates sin so much? Well, it's Isaiah 41.8, where Isaiah is talking about the offspring of Abraham, and he throws in Abraham, who was, God says, he was my friend. We write, read about it in Second Chronicles, and James, he brings it up again. And so I think one of the ways we settle this is we think, well, either sin isn't as bad as Rev says, or it doesn't bother God as much as we think. But no, those things are still true. Sin is as bad or worse as I'll ever paint it out. And it bothers our God more than we'll ever understand. 
but he chooses to befriend us. I guess the only way I've been able to understand it is my friend Dave Ross, and I've talked about Dave a few times. Dave Ross was born with a genetic disorder, uh, a type of hemophilia that was so aggressive that his body actually fought. When they transfused blood to have him stop bleeding internally, his body actually fought against the factors in the blood that was donated. Um, so it was a very, just a very severe case of hemophilia. And here's how I thought about it. Maybe it'll help you. I love David Ross. He taught me so much about visiting people in the hospital. Taught me so much about suffering. Taught me so much about a hope and resurrection. I remember sitting in a hospital room with him once, and there were these giant trees out there. And he goes, when I was a kid, those trees were planted. I'm sitting in the same room in my 50s, and there's those trees. And he talked about his hope in Christ. And you know what it is? I love David. I hated his hemophilia. Our Father can love us, befriend us. And as we, if, if you've had a friendship like this with a human being, you, you, you go into that friendship and, and eventually at some point you're invited in to speak like David's counselors into their life and say, this tendency of yours, this habit of yours, this cycle you go through, it is keeping you from maturing. It is keeping you from uh, knowing the, the, this, 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 this full grace of God. It is hurting you in your work. This is hurting you in your marriage. This is hurting you in relationships. A friend is brought in, and then a friend receives from a friend this information. Right? A friend receives it because I know this person is for me. I know this person is for me. I know this person has seen me at my worst. I know this person knows secrets about me that I'll never share with anybody else. I know I can trust this person when I, when I come undone. Therefore, I can believe they're best for me. Paul answers this question. What then becomes of our boasting? What then about Abraham? And I want to look at it quickly in these three things. The first thing he asks, and it really should be the first question we ask is, what does the Scripture say? Okay, he, he doesn't reason, um, and, and I said he does it differently than I would have. If a Jew would have said to me, what about Abraham, what about David? You know what I would have done? I would say, Abraham? Uh, you mean the guy who impatiently had sex with his wife's servant? Because God wasn't getting his wife pregnant to fulfill his promises, so he thought, I'll do it on my own. That guy? Huh. You know what else I would have done? Oh, you mean Abraham, the guy whose wife was so hot that when they moved to a new area, he said, hey, uh, tell the king you're my sister because he's going to want to have relations with you and he'll kill me. That guy? We wouldn't even have him as a member in our church. Right? That's what I would have done. What about David? I've done the same thing with David. Oh, you, you mean David? What a great father he was. Sons killed each other. Incestuous relationships. That guy? The adulterer? The murderer? But no. He actually goes to their strength. He doesn't, he doesn't belittle them. He's like, these are your heroes of the faith. 
And yes, even they were justified by faith alone. What does the scripture say? So it's interesting, it takes these two characters. <clears throat> Abraham was 500 years probably before Mount Sinai, before the Ten Commandments were even written, and David about 500 years afterwards. And he asks the people, what do the scriptures say? And in Genesis 15, we read, Abraham believed God. In Genesis 12, Abraham is called and he is given a covenant. Uh, he is given a unilateral covenant. God takes Abraham not because Abraham is good. He takes them, he takes them from Ur of the Chaldees. He takes them from an idol-worshiping community, a godless community, and he, he reaches out and he says, Abraham, you're going to be my friend. You're going to be the father of a great nation. Abraham, this is what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your children as multiple as the sand on the seashore. Abraham, look at the stars. Can you count the stars? That's how your descendants will be. Abraham, I will bless you, and I will bless those who bless you. And those who curse you, I will curse. It's a unilateral covenant. God says, here's what I'm choosing to do. I'm going to take you, and I'm going to make my name great through you. Genesis 15, it gets renewed. Renewed again in Genesis 17 when the sign of circumcision comes. And we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But, but, but God makes this promise. And Abraham believed God. That's what the scriptures say. Believed God and it was credited. It was counted to him as righteousness. What does the scripture say? And so uh, that needs to be our answer the questions, right? What does the scripture say? And I know I pound this into you all the time, but we should know what the scriptures say. We should be students of God's word. It is a great gift he has given to us. We each have our own that we get to read. We get to know what does God say? What does God think? Paul says that to them. Not I'm going to argue from logic or argue from pragmatism. Oh, Jews, what does the scripture say? say. Not does what does mom and dad say or whatever various goat we seem to be following, but what do the scriptures say? The scriptures say Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now here's what's interesting. That verse happens in chapter 15 or yeah, chapter 15 of Genesis. In chapter 16 is where Abraham who believed in God decides to take his wife's servant, something that was done culturally, something that the nations around him did culturally, right? It was appropriate culturally to do this, right? To raise his family, and Sarah was on board with this. Take my maidservant, as, as those around us do when they can't have babies, they offer their maidservant, and, and they take that child as their own, right? Abraham uh, believed God, and yet he was impatient. Believe God, and yet he broke God's law in trying to fulfill God's promise. Um, and yet it was counted to him as righteousness. He sinned after that many times. It was counted to him as righteousness. So the second question then becomes, what then must be believed? And it's interesting, as I was typing out this message, uh, and in the scripture text when it said, Abraham believed God, Every time I put it in there, it tried to, the uh, autocorrect tried to correct it to Abraham believed in God. Tried to put that little preposition in there. When I talk about words being important, it tried to sneak in. He believed in God. No, he believed God. It's 
much bigger than believed in God. He believed God. What has the Almighty said? What has the Almighty promised? Yes, I believe in His Word, but I believe in Him. How can I think about sacrificing my son? Because I believe God that somehow his promise is still going to be fulfilled. Even if I go through this grisly thing that all the nations around me are doing, I thought he was different, but I'm going to believe God. What must we believe? We must believe God. We've got to believe everything he says, everything he promises. You know what we've got to believe? We've got to believe when it says sin is sin. We've got to believe that. We've got to believe that he owns everything. And is sovereign over everything. Confessions say all his creatures, all of creation, and all their actions. Specifically here, he believed in God's promises. The text here says that he would justify the ungodly. Believed God and his promise to justify the ungodly. I believed God. He would forgive sins. He would save me for eternity. What must be believed? It must be belie- God must be believed. His promises, his covenant, talked about it already, Genesis 12, God makes this promise to him. He believed in it. And I think it's good for us to also believe in God's friendship. God calls Abraham his friend. You know, um, Spurgeon, who I quote often, suffered with melancholy. Um, I've called it depression. Maybe in the, today he would have gotten medications for it. Um, it, it was bad. Uh, and occasionally um, the elders would be called to come and gather him up off his couch and take him in a horse-drawn cart to the beach. But he wrote this. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are? Divine love would have put you there. It's one of my favorite quotes of his. I know I use it probably once a year. But it's, I just I want you to remember that as God, as your Savior, as your Father, but also as your friend. The position he puts you in, if it was anything better for you, he would change it. That's what it means to believe God. When we question his plan, his path, the suffering, I believe God. That he would put me in whichever position, setting is right for me. So we also believe in God's gospel. And I love it that he uses these two, um, these two examples. You can think of maybe Abraham as being the one who, um, uh, as I've talked about, the chasm between God is not just, a, not just a, a Grand Canyon, but it's like standing on the Grand Canyon and looking at Everest. You, you can think of Abraham as, as, as really being kind of the one who accomplished and achieved and did. And David, and the reason he uses Psalm 32, David is being the one whose sins would have, would have driven God's face away from him. And yet God covered that. Um, last question. 
how do I join them? Uh, how can I be certain that God is my friend? And again, it's all, I don't think of that concept very often because to me, it almost sounds like I'm belittling his character and it's, it's great that it's in the scriptures. But how can I be certain of it? Um, well, I want, to, I want you to know that, that the faith of David and Abraham, it was shown more in repentance and that's why he chooses Psalm 32. Their faith is shown in, in repentance. But how do I join them? How do I become? Well, first, you got to know God. You, you, have to, you have to work on knowing God. He has, he has like he said, he's laid it out there for us. It, it's not at some mountain we have to climb. It's not in the depths of the sea. Come and know me. He, he lays himself open in his word. By the power of the Spirit, he, he opens our hearts to know him as we read the narrative, the laws, even the sacrificial systems. Know him. And I think I neglected this too. I think somehow, because I'm so averse to legalism, uh, that, that I, I, I think I miss, I'm kind of encouraging you towards Christian disciplines. You know, maybe that's this morning's message. I come to Sunday school and read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. Set, set apart a time. Start a system. Start a plan. We do it with everything else in life that we want to be good at, don't we? Right? We go to the driving range and we work with our irons. I buy the club that Dustin tells me to buy. And I'm still horrible. Why? Because I don't practice. Right? Know God. The best way for you to know God is to read His holy word that He's given to you. And know yourself. The Bible helps us know ourselves. See, it gives us the mirror to see how God sees us. It's as if the Spirit is bringing this other wonderful, thoughtful, kind, and gracious friend into our lives. Um, you all probably all know the story of Job, righteous man, um, and, and, he, and he loses everything. And at some point he questions God, and he questions God concerning this. Has it been in vain that I was a righteous man? Because the scriptures say he was a righteous man, that there was no one like him. And, and yet he suffered. He lost his children. He lost his money. He lost his fortune. And, and, he, and he physically he was in pain. And, and then these counselors came in, and all these counselors were doing was giving him the American health and wealth gospel. Job, if you were bad, God would give you back your kids. Job, if you would just pray more, if you would just do, then, then, then everything would be better. Certainly, Job, you're doing something wrong and you're hiding it from all of us. It's amazing at the end of the story. Here's what we read about Job in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 40. Job had brought his complaint before the Lord. And then the Lord met him and questioned him. And, and it, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's scary. Sit down and I will ask you, Job. Have you seen the storehouses of hail? Do you know where the wind comes from? Job responds. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's talking about himself. Therefore, I have uttered what I didn't understand. 
things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you. He's talking about God by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I can't read the rest of it, but it is a beautiful response from our God, restoring everything. Job knew himself, and he knew God. We become a friend with God, and our friendship grows deeper as we know him. And he lays it out, come and know me. And know the gospel. This whole section started with the gospel. The apostle says, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed. And now we understand why you could be ashamed of it. Because the gospel, first of, first of all, is offensive to us. The gospel is offensive to every bit of self-righteousness we hold on to. But he says, I'm not ashamed of it. Because it's the power of salvation. For all who believe. This week, I admonish you, call on God the Father as the friend of sinners. He hates sin so much, but he loves his children even more. We see this when we see Jesus, God in flesh and blood, drawn to the sick and the hurting and the sinful. You know, that's the charge that the religious leaders bring against him. Mark 2, he befriended tax collectors and sinners. He is sitting at the table having a meal with them. Luke 5, he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Brothers and sisters, three rivers, your father is the best friend you could ever, ever imagine best friend you could ever, ever hope for. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. The demands he puts on you is to believe him. Believe him. Rest upon him. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these two examples, that your scripture is not full of examples of people who are perfect. You even call Job in front of the enemy, in front of the devil, and you say, have you seen him? Oh, Lord, we pray that you, in your friendship with sinners, tax collectors, in your rescuing and justifying of the ungodly, would instill upon us how precious it is to know you. That though at times maybe reading your word and, and being in prayer it seems to me like discipline. And we play with our own minds saying, if I don't feel it, then I shouldn't do it. Um, oh, Lord, will you break us up those habits? Will you make us hunger, thirst after your word? Will it be to us, as the psalm says, a light unto our path? Will it be to us, Father, as a meal that is sweet and lasting, that we might know you, and in knowing you, we might trust you even more. Father, we thank you again for the examples. We thank you, Lord, 
that you show us men and women just like ourselves. Men and women given so much, and yet at the slightest, slightest suffering, at the slightest chance of something going wrong or being called to wait or being denied things that everybody else has, we quickly run away from you and we think you're not a good friend, you're not a good father. In vain have we kept your word. Thank you for forgiving all those sins and remaining steadfast and faithful. And now, Lord, we set these elements apart. This bread that's given to us as a friend who would deny himself things that belong to him, rights that belong to him, and would give to a friend life. As your word says, a good friend, we might lay, we might lay our lives down for a good friend, but you demonstrate your love in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. May we drink this cup and believe the cleansing power of your blood. May we eat this bread and believe that we are declared righteous. It is counted to us as righteousness. By faith alone, in Christ alone, and for your glory alone, we pray. Amen.